This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the passage we looked at just a few minutes ago, John chapter 6. We're looking this morning at verses 68 and 69. 68 and 69, this of course is Peter's answer to Jesus' question. In verse 67, Jesus, as others are walking away, asks his disciples, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks to you for your word this morning. Uh, Father, we pray that as we study it, think about it, that you would feed our souls with it. Father, we pray that as we study these words, you would stir our hearts, that in the very contemplation of them, we would worship you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you willing to follow an unpopular Messiah? Unpopular, you say. Even many of my non-Christian friends speak highly of Jesus. Do they? Yes, the world will accept and even speak well of a certain Jesus, a nice Jesus, a tame Jesus, a Jesus of their own imagination, A Jesus you will never find in the pages of Holy Scripture. But the Jesus of the Bible, now that's a different story. This is a Jesus who makes people uncomfortable. This is a Jesus who says things that offend human pride and sensibilities. This Jesus... The biblical Jesus, Jesus of the gospel, the Jesus who is, the Jesus who exists, this Jesus has never been what you would call popular in our day or in any other. In this passage before us, John chapter 6, Jesus' popularity, such as it was to that point, the fascination of the crowds with him, was fading fast. At every turn in chapter 6, people were increasingly unhappy with Jesus. They wanted Jesus to prove himself. Who are you? Moses gave us manna. What will you do? Jesus said he was the bread of life who came down from heaven, and they grumbled at that. Isn't this Jesus, whose mother and father we know, son of Joseph? How can he say, I've come down from heaven? 
Jesus said, the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And when Jesus elaborated on that, when he explained, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this kind of stuff? Jesus knew they were grumbling. He knew that they were rejecting him. So does he back down? No. On the contrary, he escalates. Do you take offense at this? He said. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, the problem's not with Jesus. Jesus spoke the truth. The problem was with the people. It was with their hearts. They were spiritually dead. Spiritually unresponsive. And Jesus knew that. But he wasn't willing to compromise the truth to accommodate their unbelief. He knew that the only way they would believe is if they had new hearts, receptive hearts, given to them by his Father in heaven. And that's why, he says to them in verse 65, that's why this this rejection, this grumbling, that's why he said, I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He'd already said that earlier in chapter 6, and they didn't like it when he said that then, but he repeats it. That's why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. People generally don't like to be told they can't do things. They don't like to be told they're not in charge. People don't like to be told that their relationship to God depends ultimately on God and not on them. And so verse 66 tells us, when Jesus said that, 66 tells us, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They rejected Jesus. They decided they'd heard enough, and they went their own way. You see, the Jesus of Scripture offends natural fallen man. He is God. We are not, and our sin nature does not like it that way. The real Jesus will never be popular with the unbelieving world. Crowds are walking away beginning to disperse. People are leaving in droves. What about the twelve? Jesus' earliest and closest disciples, his friends. So verse 67, Jesus asks them, point blank. One uh, one scholar even uses the word he challenges them. He asks them, what about you? You want to go away as well? Which creates a moment of tension. Will they go with the crowd, or will they stay with Jesus? They can't have it both ways. They have to choose. You see, it's easy to follow Jesus when everyone seems to be following Jesus. But what about when Jesus, the real Jesus, becomes unpopular as inevitably will happen? What will you do? Will you go with the crowd, or will you stay with Jesus? You can't have it both ways. 
you have to choose. Well, as is often the case, Peter jumps up and speaks for the disciples, speaks for the group of them, and he tells Jesus, Jesus, we're staying with you. doesn't matter what other people do. We are with you, Jesus. Now, if you look at it, what we read there in John chapter 6, he doesn't say this in so many words. He doesn't say, we're staying with you, Jesus. Rather, he just gives the reasons why they're staying with Jesus. And you know, his reasons are our reasons. The reasons Jesus lists here are our reasons as well. Three reasons why, even when Jesus is unpopular with the crowds, and those who follow him would become unpopular with the crowds, that we still follow him. That we don't walk away. Three reasons we stick with Jesus. Let's look at them. Reason number one. There is no viable alternative to Jesus. Jesus is not one option among many that we might have. We realize that there is no viable alternative to Jesus. Simon Peter recognizes this immediately. When Jesus asks that question, are you going to go away too? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, I know there have been those who take Peter's statement if not negatively, at least in a sort of wishy-washy way. As if Jesus, as if Peter just shrugs and says, well, you know, there's nowhere else to go. We might as well stay with you, Jesus. <laughs> We're just option poor here, so we, you know, you're the best we can do for the moment, so there's nowhere else to go. Now, if that's all Peter said, you might hear it that way. But that's not all Peter said. The words that come after it. Color how we hear that question, Lord, to whom shall we go? If we look at it in its context, we realize this is not just a question of resignation. Oh, well, you know, we'll just have to stick with you for now. But rather, it is a compelling confession that besides Jesus, there is nothing and there is no one. Similar to his great confession in Matthew. when He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Peter gets it. He sees it. And he understands when Jesus says to them, are you going to walk away? He says, Lord, there's nowhere else to go. To whom shall we go? It's a, it's a confession that Jesus is it. There is nowhere else. Now, as you look at the world and look around, of course, there's no shortage of candidates that would compete with Jesus for our allegiance, for our devotion, There are apparent alternatives. What are some of those? Well, perhaps, obviously, in in his day, in our day, there would be, of course, other religions. But you start looking at them, you see that they're all about works. They're all about what you have to do for God. They all leave you wondering, therefore, if you've done enough, if you're good enough. And so you face eternity with no assurance whatsoever. They turn you inward on yourself. Sort of this introspective, ever self-searching navel-gazing. Look at the fruit. Cows are sacred. Women are oppressed. Their founders are dead. Jesus was dead, but is alive. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter asks. You see... There is no viable alternative to Jesus in other religions. Okay? 
What about uh, non-religion? What about atheism and its uh, necessary cousin evolution? Yeah, I read an article just uh, last week, uh, a survey actually done by a couple guys at Penn State uh, back in spring of 2007, a survey of biology teachers in high school. And what they discovered, interestingly, uh, about 13 percent enthusiastically teach creation or intelligent design. Uh, About 28 percent teach evolution with enthusiasm. About 60 percent teach evolution, but with a measure of caution. Uh, without wholehearted enthusiasm. And this seems to trouble some of the powers that be, that after all of these years, they can't seem to drum up more enthusiasm among biology teachers for evolution. Certainly hasn't been for lack of trying. Why is that? I suspect it's because people have an innate sense that the only thing you're going to get out of nothing is nothing. People have an innate sense that the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, that things tend to go from a state of higher energy to lower energy is true, which flies in the face of evolution, that things go from lower energy to higher energy, from from less complexity to greater complexity on their own. I watch my desk through a week, and it goes from a state of order to disorder, and I have to work hard to bring it back to a state of order. Well, if there's no one there to bring about the state of order, how does it just happen by itself? It doesn't happen on my desk. How does it happen in a universe? People know that. There's an innate sense of that. Even those, I suspect, who are not believers, who are trying to teach evolution, get a sense that the emperor has no clothes. That the logic is faulty, the evidence is lacking, And so, no, they don't have a whole lot of enthusiasm for teaching this stuff. British physicist Stephen Hawking is no doubt a brilliant man, one of the most renowned, well-respected scientists of our time, and I suspect of any time. But even he, in his atheism, and I know he refers to God in a brief history of time, but I think he does so simply metaphorically, He's reduced to saying in his recent book that the universe created itself. Ponder that one for a little while. Paul says in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. You see, we reject God, we're left with foolishness. So when an atheist says something that is, is good or it's bad, it's beautiful or it's ugly, he really has no basis ultimately for, for making such valuations. You see, you can't say that anything is good, bad, or ugly. You're left simply with preference. And one person's preference is as good as another's. And to say otherwise is to borrow Christian capital to make a moral judgment about anything. The fool, Scripture says, has said in his heart, there is no God. Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no viable alternative to Jesus in atheism, in evolution. Another candidate that might put itself forward, certainly in Peter's day, as well as our own, is that of hedonism. Live for the moment. Live for pleasure. Maximize pleasure. Minimize pain. There are those who give themselves to the party life. I've noticed an interesting phenomenon over the years in in Presbytery. 
Uh, as we receive men as candidates for the ministry, uh, and they come under the care of our presbytery or for ordination, whatever step it might be in the process of becoming a minister, they often will give their testimonies. And there's a, not, not universal, but frequent uh, line of thought that, that I find in many of these men's testimonies. They grew up in a Christian home. They were taught the scriptures. They were told the gospel. And yet in high school, maybe in college, they sort of leave it. They go, they go wild. Uh, they go for the party life. They know the truth in their head, but in their hearts, they want to live for the moment. They want to live in pursuit of pleasure. And they get in all kinds of things that they should not be doing. And that in the back of their minds, they know, is wrong. And the point comes where, like the prodigal son, they reach an end of themselves. They, they see where they've come from and they see what they have become. And they're disgusted. And they're afraid. And they flee to their father. Not their earthly father, though maybe him too. But they flee to their heavenly father. The one of whom they heard in childhood. Young adulthood. And they realize they believed a lie that they had been had. They realize they believed the lie that the party life, the hedonistic life, would fulfill them. And they found out the truth. That it left them empty, it left them hungry, it left them scarred, it left them hurting. And their Heavenly Father, when they came back to Him, was so good in Christ to fill their emptiness, feed their hunger, heal their scars, remove their hurts. So much so that they wanted others to know the grace of God in Christ. And through that, God called them to himself in ministry to, to share that good news in the context of gospel ministry. It's good news, right? I mean, we're glad to hear that God has called the prodigal back to himself. But how much better would it have been in God's grace if they hadn't gone there to begin with so that the gospel prevents the scars of sin rather than coming afterward and having to deal with the scars of sin? Why learn things the hard way if you don't have to? If someone, maybe someone who's been there, tells you. That's not just high school students, college students. Some people never seem to learn. Always pursuing maximum pleasure, minimum pain. Uh, a new wife, a different career, bigger house, more expensive car, newest eye, whatever. But then the new wife or husband Turns out to be a sinner, just like the one before. The big job falls through, the big house has termites, and your neighbor pulls up in his driveway with a brand new, even more expensive car than the one that you just bought, and Apple cuts the price right after you just bought. These are all things that our Heavenly Father knows that we need. And yet, if they become our God, they are, as the hymn All for Jesus says, gilded, that means covered with gold, gilded, Toys of dust. Yes, our Father knows we need a spouse, a house, a car, a phone. He knows that we need all these things. But he says, seek first the kingdom, the righteousness of Christ. And he'll provide everything else that we need. Those things cannot bear the weight of your life, of your highest allegiance, of your deepest aspirations. You really want to live that way? hedonistic, materialistic, shallow, empty, dead. 
Is that what you want your life to be? Peter says, to whom shall we go? There is no viable alternative to Jesus in hedonism, in a life of pursuing pleasure. Now, I hope you understand what Peter understood when he asked this question, Lord, to whom shall we go? It's not so much a question as it is a statement. He's making a statement that there is no viable alternative to Jesus. He says the first reason Peter stayed. When the crowds were walking away, Jesus knew, or Peter knew there was nothing that they were walking away to that was a viable alternative to what they had right there in front of them in Jesus. But there's a second reason. That's the first reason Peter stayed. That's why we stay. There's a second reason that he mentions as well. Reason number two. Not only is there no viable alternative to Jesus, there's no one else who says what Jesus says. There's no one else who says what Jesus says. As Peter puts it there in verse 68, you have the, you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. Now, no doubt Jesus or Peter heard a lot of talk in his family, around town there in Capernaum, his fishing business, heard a lot of talk in the synagogue, a lot of talk from the rabbis. But he had never heard anything like Jesus. He wasn't alone, of course. Others commented on Jesus' speech, the unique nature of it as well. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus spoke at the synagogue, people were astonished at his teaching because he spoke as one having authority and not like their scribes. After Jesus had cast out a demon, the people reacted, Mark 1, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And even an officer sent to investigate Jesus came back to the Pharisees in John 7, and they say to him, No man ever spoke like this. But Peter's comment here in the end of John 6 is not so much about how Jesus spoke, this, this authority, this compelling nature of it in terms of the event, but, but more what Jesus said. Not so much how, but what Jesus said. Jesus spoke about eternal life. The rabbis talked about rules. Jesus talked about life. The Pharisees made you feel guilty. Jesus made you feel alive. The Sadducees fill you with despair. Jesus fills you with hope. Yes, Jesus said some things that were hard to understand. Yes, he said some things that were difficult to take. But when you took a look at what Jesus said, when you started to think about it, when you started to pray about it, when you started to search the scriptures about it, those things started to make sense. He saw that Jesus was right. And we've seen this in John's gospel. If you read up through chapter 6, you see these things. It was Jesus who, when Nathanael expressed amazement that Jesus knew him, said to Nathanael, you'll see greater things than these. You'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, John 1. Jesus claimed to forgive sins, and to prove he could do it, he made a lame man get up and walk, John chapter 2. He spoke of being born again and of looking to him, to Jesus, in faith for forgiveness and eternal life. John chapter 3. He spoke of living water that would quench the thirsty soul forever in John chapter 4, talking with the woman at the well. He spoke of his fellowship with his father and how others could enter into that fellowship, become part of that fellowship with Jesus and with his father in John chapter 5. And here in John chapter 6, the early part of the chapter, he fed a crowd of thousands. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. It was just the men. 
crowd of 5,000 men plus women plus children with next to nothing, and then speaks of himself as the bread of life. Whoever eats of that bread, that is whoever believes in him, will live forever. John chapter 6. It's these things that Jesus said that we read about, that, that Peter was noticing, and he recognized that while there was no one who obeyed God's law and loved God's law the way that Jesus did, at the same time, Jesus didn't talk about trivial legalism, but he talked about eternal life. Eternal life through believing in him, trusting in him, following him. So Jesus had these words of eternal life in the sense that he talked about eternal life. He talked about more than just these, these legal details, but he talked about the big picture, about knowing God about living for God, about having forgiveness, reconciled to God. But not only did Jesus speak words about eternal life. When Peter says, you have words of eternal life, he was talking about Jesus spoke words that gave eternal life. Now, he didn't do it automatically, of course. There were those who rejected Jesus and rejected his words. But to those who received him and received and believed his teaching, they found that they were transformed they, they found that they trusted in him, and they were changed. There was something new, this new principle, new life in them that made them hate sin, not just out there in the world, but here in their heart, that made them want to live lives that honored God because they had forgiveness in Jesus. They recognized that apart from how they lived, by believing in Jesus, they had a new standing with God. They were now acceptable to God because they were forgiven and covered by the blood and righteousness of Jesus. You see, Peter stuck with Jesus because he recognized the life-giving power of Jesus' words, of Jesus' message that ultimately pointed to Jesus' work on the cross. And so not only was there no viable alternative, but when Jesus spoke, whether it was to Peter himself or to the twelve or to the crowds, what he said was so compelling, so life-giving, so right that there was no chance he was going anywhere else. No man ever spoke like this man. No one else who says the things that Jesus says. And that's why Peter stayed, and that's why we say. Who else speaks the message of grace, of what, not what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ that Jesus does? That's why we stay. There's no viable alternative. No one says the things that Jesus says. It's done for us what Jesus has done. But there's a third reason here that Peter wasn't leaving and that we're not going to leave. Reason number three, there is no one else who is who Jesus is. There is no one else out there who is who Jesus is. Here's how Peter put it, verse 69. He says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The third reason that Peter stays is because this conviction had formed within him. The words seem to indicate here a progression. He says, literally, we have come to believe. In other words, we started a process that has led to this. We met you, Jesus. We started listening to you. We arrived at a point where we believed something about you, and we still believe it. Then he adds, not only have we come to believe, but we have come to know both verbs, perfect tense. We have come to believe. We have come to know. So why does he add this? I mean, why didn't he just say we've come to believe? Well, to believe sounds a little bit like an opinion. You know, I believe that this is true. Now, you may not believe that, but I believe that. 
or it may have sort of an element of uncertainty to it. Well, I believe that's what he said last week, but you know, my memory's getting a little foggy on that. Well, here, Peter intentionally moves beyond conviction to fact. We've come to believe this, but we've also come to know as a fact, that is, he's moved from what is his conviction to what is objectively true. What he says basically is this, we know it's true about you, Jesus, that this is who you are, whether we or anyone else believes it or not. It's not a matter of just conviction. It's a matter of fact, of reality. And so Peter nails it right on the head. For far too many people, religion, even their thinking about Jesus, has to do with opinion. It has to do with imagination, not with fact. I like to think of God as being like this. It's irrelevant. How does God reveal himself in the scriptures? And so Peter recognizes this about who Jesus is, not what he or someone else might choose to think about Jesus or want him to be. And what was it Jesus had, or Peter had this conviction about when he thought of Jesus? Well, he says that he was the Holy One of God. Interesting title. You don't find it too often in, in, in Scripture, in the New Testament. In fact, you only find it three times. Here, and in Mark, and in Luke, where it's describing the same incident. And it's not coming on the lips of someone who loves Jesus. In fact, there's a man there in the synagogue who is demon-possessed. And this man and the demon in him come to Jesus and they say, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's the only other time we find that description of Jesus in the New Testament coming on the lips of a demon, which doesn't mean it's not true. And in fact, Peter uses that here, and it does echo the name for God that we find frequently in the Old Testament, the Holy One of Israel. Now, that expression in the Old Testament occurs 31 times, 25 of which are in Isaiah. It apparently was one of Isaiah's favorite titles for God, the Holy One of Israel. 25 times out of 31 in the Old Testament, it's in Isaiah. So the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God, the demon knows it, Peter knows it too. Now, Peter and the others had come to believe, they'd come to know that Jesus was the promised, long-awaited Messiah, the Savior. The crowds may walk away. Peter wasn't going anywhere. There's no one else who is who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate. For some of you, your friend, it may be premature to talk about you walking away from Jesus. Because for you, what you need is to walk to Jesus for the first time. To follow an unpopular Messiah for the first time. Why would you do that? Why would you risk becoming rejected yourself to follow this Savior? Maybe you're tired of the shallowness of your life. Maybe you're tired of the selfishness, the emptiness, always feeling dirty before a holy God and unacceptable to him. Why do you feel that way? Because you are dirty and unacceptable to a holy God. So am I. So are all of us. But you see, Jesus is the Holy One of God. Through his blood that pays for sin, through his righteousness given to us as a free gift received by faith, he makes us holy ones of God as well. Not that we become deity, but we become part of the family of God, and we become holy in Christ. So maybe you need to begin that process that Peter 
was on and had reached an end, of beginning to listen to Jesus, to read what he says, to think about what he says, to begin to pray, God, if this is real, show it to me. Let me understand it. Let me see how it applies. Maybe God will bring you to that place. Or maybe you're ready to be there now. Will you trust in him as your Savior? Will you receive from him today the gift of forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life? And so you follow Jesus, no matter what your family thinks, no matter what your friends think, because, like Peter, you know who he is. For others of you, I trust most of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, as our culture loses the influence of Christianity on it, and it indeed in some ways seems to be more hostile to biblical Christianity than ever before, Following Jesus will be less and less a matter of convenience and will have to be more and more a matter of conviction. Now, in one sense, it's always been that way, but I would suggest that the lines are becoming more clearly drawn in our day. Who is a Christian? Who is not? The only way you'll do that is if you know what Peter knew. That Jesus is the Holy One of God. That He alone speaks words of eternal life. That apart from Him, there is no viable alternative. Are you willing to follow an unpopular Messiah? Let's pray. Father, we do. By Your grace, believe in Christ and follow Him. Father, help us to do so, not just today when we're here at church, but tomorrow when we're at work, when we're at school through this week. Help us to be willing to stand with you, Jesus, for these same reasons that Peter stood with you so long ago. And we pray it asking for your help, looking to your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn.